Hey, welcome to the Night Church Podcast, where we meet every Friday evening for worship at the Loma Linda University Church for young adults by young adults. We hope this encourages you and someone else you know. Enjoy. Thank you all for coming in. This is our first night indoors after a wonderful summer on the rooftop. Appreciate you guys all being here. My name's Derek. Um, I've been a part of Praxis for going on five years now. I remember back when we used to meet in the car- courtyard out by, um, man, what do we call that area now? The children's area, I guess, on the other side of the, of the church here. I'm a chaplain at the hospital. If you're ever in the ICU, I'm really sorry. Um, but uh, I will be the, the ICU chaplain for 7 and 8th floor in the new hospital there. Feel free to stop by any time if you have any life-threatening um, conditions and are in need of spiritual support. Good to, good to see you all tonight. Um, we're speaking on Revelation tonight. It's a heavy topic. It's a, it's a heavy passage. Um, but I appreciate you all being here and being willing to dive into this with me. I am proud of my grandfather for choosing atheism. I am proud of my grandfather for choosing atheism. You see, my grandfather was a chemical engineer, a rocket scientist. He worked on the propulsion system and steering system for the Apollo 11 moon landing project. Once, when we were in the a few years ago, when we were in the San Diego Aerospace Museum, he took me up to the, the capsule that landed on the moon. He pointed to it and he said, This is what I designed. This little part right here that helps steer this module through space, I designed that. He was incredibly intelligent, but he was also scrupulous in his morals. Once when he was working for a well-known jet engine company as a quality control manager, he was asked to falsify a a report by his supervisors um, and claimed that an anti-icing system they were testing was in fact effective. He declined because he had, in his testing, found ice forming on that jet engine. He said, no, this is going to risk the lives of millions. I will not falsify this report. Instead, he decided to redesign the system himself. And today, every anti-icing system used on a jet engine was designed by my grandfather. In retaliation for his nonconformity, though, they did not include his name on the patent. He was not bothered by this. He knew that he had done the right thing. Right thing. That was all that was what mattered to him. However, when he took a look at American Christianity, when he took a look at Christianity throughout the centuries, he looked closely at, his, at its claims. He saw a wrathful God, a God who tortured souls in hell for eternity. He saw a church that had for 2,000 years used violence and power and the threat of hell to manipulate the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. He saw all that, and he rejected Christianity as a scam. 
a grift, a shameless grab at power and relevancy in an increasingly scientific world. I am proud of my grandfather for choosing atheism rather than accepting the brutal and violent image of God that he was presented with. I am proud of my grandfather for choosing atheism, but I am also proud of my father for choosing Adventism. If you look at the statistics in American Christianity, it appears that many people in America are making the same decision that my grandfather made almost a century ago. 50 years ago, 90% of America identified themselves as Christian. Today, that is down to 64%. That may still seem like a lot of America, but statisticians agree that if this trend continues, American Christianity could be dead by the year 2070, a date within many of our lifetimes. Respect for clergy is also radically down. A 2022 Gallup study published during the pandemic um, found that only 39% of the U.S. population could agree with the statement, clergy have high integrity. Only 39% view clergy as integrist, 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 whatever. By comparison, 89% viewed nurses as highly honest, and 77% viewed doctors as highly honest. It is clear that Christianity is facing a crisis. In my own life over the past years, I have witnessed many of my friends leave the church. I have walked them, watched them walk away from the church and also lose all respect for religious authority. In my mind, a pattern is forming. They are not leaving out of laziness. They are not giving in to temptation. They are not choosing a life of debauchery or sin. Instead, they are leaving because, like my grandfather, they are rejecting a false image of God. For too long, American Christianity has told lies about God in our theology and in our behavior. We have chosen a God of power, of judgment, discrimination, and of control, rather than a God of persuasion and self-sacrifice. To any student of Revelation, this decline and gradual fall of Christianity is no surprise. With your permission, let's dive in, okay? To see where Christianity went wrong, let's begin in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. We've talked about in previous weeks that this woman is representative of Christ's church, of the church of God, standing in all of her glory. She stands tall, clothed with the sun, standing upon the moon. She gives birth to a child, Jesus, the Son of God. But in this moment of triumph, she's attacked by the dragon, the enemy of God's people, 
the dragon who swept a third of the angels out of the sky of heaven, Lucifer. After this, this baby, after Jesus ascends to heaven, she faces immense persecution. She trusts God, she's protected, and she finds a place to hide in the wilderness. The wilderness becomes her home, and there she flourishes. This harmonizes pretty well with, with church history, if you look back at it. Following the death of Christ, the church faced immense persecution, first by the Jewish religious elite and then by the Roman government. They were forced to flee underground, and in hiding the religious, in hiding Christianity spread rapidly. She flourished, and she eventually spread across the Roman Empire, becoming the dominant religion of the time. Several chapters go by in Revelation. We don't have time to dive into those right now. It's we view as Earth's history slowly undergoes what I love to call entropy, the slow degradation of society, things falling apart, the Earth falling apart. It's slowly falling into chaos, and we know that it's coming to the end. The world is coming to an end. Then, as we near the end of Revelation, again we return to that wilderness. Again, in chapter 17, we return to the wilderness, trying to seek out what happened to that woman that we left out there. What happened to the woman who sought freedom who sought safety in the wilderness. And we see that she has undergone a radical, terrible transformation. Revelation 17, verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on scarlet, uh, on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had its seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adored with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. John the Revelator, as he's witnessing this, this vision, he marvels greatly. He's seen this woman before. He recognizes her. This was the perfect, pure image of the church that had fled in the wilderness, attempting to flee persecution. And now, what happened? The persecuted, faithful woman we left in the wilderness has been transformed into something terrible. The oppressed has become the oppressor. God's church now has a new name, Babylon. In the ancient world, Babylon was a name that struck terror into its surrounding nations. It was a symbol of oppression and destruction. The world lived in terror of a Babylonian siege. They would come to your city, destroy the gates, destroy your people, and your life would never be the same. Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple. Babylon enslaved Israel and began the great Jewish diaspora. This radical transformation of the woman from the perfect image of Christ's church to now Babylon leaves us with a haunting realization. Babylon, this final enemy of God, the final enemy of truth, will not be some secular force seeking to overthrow Christianity. Instead, the final enemy of truth, the final enemy of God, will be itself the Christian church, radically and terribly transformed from its early roots. The 
before we move on to chapter 18, where our text is for this actual sermon is today, I want to talk about one more thing. Along with this new name, God's church has taken up a new profession. She is a prostitute. Now, I think um, many of us would recognize that sex, works is a very, sex work is a very complicated and difficult subject to talk about. In our modern society, most of us would look at those who have taken upon prostitution as not a, not a, a position of power, not a position of oppression, but instead often the opposite. People do it often through, through weakness, through, through great need, through desperation. But throughout the Bible, the image of prostitution has sort of an opposite view. It is seen as someone who is using their power, who is using their authority, perhaps using their beauty as as a means of preying upon those who are weak and encouraging them to do things that are certainly not in their best interests. Also, in Revelation, we need to recognize that things are symbolic. In Revelation 12, verse 2, one verse before the one we just read, we see that this woman has had sexual relations with with the surrounding kings of the earth. The symbolism is really important. This is not talking about sexual immorality in in our our modern understanding of what is good sex, what is bad sex, what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. Instead, this is a symbolism of an unholy connection with the kings of the earth. This church, this, this God's pure church has chosen that she wants power, she wants control, she wants connection with the kings of the earth, she wants the power of the world. And so when Revelation talks about sexual immorality, that is what it's talking about. It is talking about how the church has given up its connection with God, its true source of authority, and instead of turning to this broken, imperfect source of power and control and abuse. Revelation is predicting that the Christian church will seek to seduce the power of the government to enforce her will upon society. Revelation is warning us that as we approach Earth's end, the Christian church, church, sensing its own weakness, will attempt to use the power of the government to enforce its own values upon society. When I look at America today, I already see this coming through. Because Christianity has embraced lies about God, lies about eternal torment, lies like nationalism, lies like racism, like sexism, lies like greed and the prosperity gospel. Because of these lies, Christianity can no longer persuade people to embrace it. People, just like my grandfather, see through the lies of Christianity, and so persuasion is no longer an option. So many Christians are turning to power and government to enforce their will upon society. If Babylon's lies were working, she wouldn't need force. She wouldn't need the power of the kings of the earth. Growing up in the Montanan desert, um, we often were very prepared to, did I say Montanan desert? Wow, Montanan wilderness. We don't have many deserts in Montana. What am I talking about? Sorry, that was a slip of the tongue. Growing up in the Montanan desert, the Californian, Montanan wilderness, the Californian desert, I have moved away from my roots. This is an abomination to my forefathers. We've been in Montana since 1870, and this is a problem. Anyways, the Montana wilderness we were prepared for as the kids. I was hyped. I wanted to see that bear. I wanted to run to a cougar. I wanted to, like, see the moose, all these things. But my parents made sure I was very prepared. We had to think about what we do when we see a bear, what we do when we see 
you don't usually see a cougar. Those ones usually see you before it's too late. But like when, when you see wild animals, what do you do? Lay dead. Excellent. That's number one, one of the number one options. Um, we were always taught, though, that a wounded bear, a wounded mountain lion, was far more dangerous than a healthy one. You see, a wounded bear, a wounded lion, often senses itself losing power. It becomes unpredictable, it becomes violent, and it is quick to lash out and attack. Christianity today is wounded. We are at a tipping point. Religiosity and respect for clergy are at an all-time low. How will the wounded animal of Christianity react? Will we grab for power? Will we force others to conform because we cannot convince? Revelation predicts that we will. I'm so glad that you've been listening to the first part of the sermon. This sort of production does require some financial cost. If you'd like to reach more young adults with this across the world, would you consider giving at praxisministry.org? You can select the Praxis Young Adult Envelope. Enjoy the rest of the sermon. Revelation, the answer is simple. Babylon will fall. Throughout history, people have used religion to abuse and control, to oppress those beneath them. But God promises that Babylon, this unholy coalition between religion and political power, will fall. God cannot abide oppression, especially the abuse of religious power. Throughout the Bible, we see countless condemnations of oppression. We read time and time again about God striking out in violent anger against those who use power to oppress others. We read in Exodus 20, 20, 22, verse 21, you shall not wrong the sojourner, the immigrant. You shall not wrong an immigrant or oppress him, for you also were immigrants in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them, they will cry out to me, and I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Amos 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Amos 5.11, therefore, because you impose heavy rent upon the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. Jeremiah 22, verse 3, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the oppressor, from the power of his oppressor. And do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. The most poignant example of God's wrath in the Bible, to me at least, is the story of Jesus casting out the money changers in the temple of Jerusalem. 
In Matthew 21, we read of a Jesus filled with rage, storming the temple. I imagine him bursting past the temple guards, heedless of their challenges. Wielding a makeshift whip, he went from table to table, violently interfering with the commerce undergoing there. You see, it was the height of the Passover. Almost half a million Jews had gathered from all around the world to worship in Jerusalem. For many, it was economically impossible to bring their own animals to sacrifice. And so local religious leadership had seized on this opportunity to exploit the impoverished worshipers. They set up systems in the, in the courtyard there, charging exorbitant rates for temple-approved animals and, and denying all other animals as impure. What was supposed to be the high point of the Jewish yearly worship cycle was now the most lucrative and exploitive moment for the religious elite. And Jesus was enraged by this. The kind, the passive teacher who encouraged his followers to turn the other cheek now brought down the wrath of God. God hates religious oppression. This finally <laughs> brings us to tonight's passage, Revelation 18, 21 through 24. Let's read it. Then a mighty angel took up a great stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great the city be thrown down with violence and, no, and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the greatest of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on earth. This passage is a celebration. It is a celebration of the fall of Babylon, a promise, a guarantee that those who intend to use religion and force to oppress will be utterly and completely destroyed. The wrath of God is coming, not for the weak and the oppressed, not for the repentant sinner longing for a better life, but for those who have used the power of the church and the threat of divine judgment to push their own lies about God. Throughout history, the wrath of God, or at least the idea of the wrath of God, has been used by the church as a tool of coercion. For centuries, threats of God's wrath were a cudgel used by the church to enforce good behavior and conformance to religious authority. Sickness, misfortune, and even death were used as examples of what happens when people displease a wrathful God through sin and by upsetting the natural order of society. The fires of hell were the ultimate threat by, use author by authority to frighten the weak and oppressed into further submission. But here, at the end of the Bible, we have a very different image of God's wrath. Not the wrath to, to force people to follow him, but instead the wrath comes to those who have oppressed. God's wrath is not directed at the lowly sinner, struggling to do better but bending beneath, bending beneath addiction. God's response is exemplified in Jesus' response to the woman caught in adultery. Those who, have, who are struggling with sin, wanting to do better, he simply says, 
neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. His response to them is gentle and loving. That contrasts dramatically with his approach in the temple. It is ironic to me that so often the church has used the threat of divine wrath as a tool of oppression, yet God's wrath is directed towards that very type of oppression. So how do we live our lives in the knowledge of the coming wrath of God? How do we live our lives? How do we apply this to our lives? First, we must ask ourselves these very difficult questions. Do I use my power to oppress? Do I use my wealth, my social status, my racial privilege, my religious authority to force my will upon those around me? Do I seek to profit off religion? Do I, through word or deed, paint a picture of God that is oppressive, divisive, discriminatory? If yes, if you or I answer yes to any of those questions, we must be afraid. We must tremble. We must repent and turn from our ways, for the wrath of God is coming for us. At the beginning, I told you guys I was proud of my, my grandfather for choosing atheism. But I also want to emphasize that I am proud of my father for seeking out God and for finding truth in Adventism. Adventism is not perfect. Those of you who know me well will know that I have seen Adventism at, my, at its worst. I have wrestled with my place within it. As a as a clergy myself, as someone seeking to, to worship God in, in a, a role as a pastor and then as a chaplain, I have wrestled. I have seen how guilt and judgment were used in my church to manipulate others. I have seen Adventists seek power and control through religion. And yet, I have chosen to stay. Despite the abuse, despite the judgment, despite the corruption, I believe that at the core of our church is a truth that stands in opposition to Babylon. Truth that calls for a separation of church and state. Truth that condemns attempts to force worship or moral conformance upon society. Truth that shows an image of God who does not torture, who does not call for blind obedience. A God who condemns consumerism and corporate greed through the doctrine of the Sabbath. A God who promises that he will return soon to bring an end to injustice and abuse and the corruption of authority. And so, in light of God's coming judgment of Babylon, how do we live knowing that religious abuse will not long endure? How do we live in light of ultimate justice? I remember waking up on my 26th birthday, May 27. 2022 videos on my Instagram and TikTok feed of an unarmed black man held face down on the ground as he was slowly suffocated under the weight of Officer Derek Chauvin's knee. I remember my outrage building as I watched a bystander, an off-duty firefighter, an EMT like me at the time I was working as an EMT. As this firefighter attempted to beg the officers to let her check to see if this man a man named George Floyd was still breathing. I remember hating the smug look on Officer Thao's face as he arrogantly held back bystanders, threatening further violence if they tried to intervene. 
remember being astonished at the casual look in Officer Chauvin's eyes as George Floyd's life slowly faded away. It is not every day that you watch a man die. And the collective trauma and anger prompted protests and violence across our nation, across the world. This anger was only intensified by the fact that this had happened many times before. You may remember names like Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Breonna Taylor, to mention only a few. It is worth noting that the central social movement, Black Lives Matter, started not as a result of Trayvon, sorry, started not as a result of Trayvon Martin's death, but only after his killer was set free. In many of these instances, protests broke out in force only after the legal system failed to bring about justice. But by 2020, May 27, my birthday, many Americans had lost hope in the American justice system to hold powerful police officers accountable. And so on May 28, 2020, a vast gathering of protesters besieged Officer Chauvin's police station, the Minneapolis 3rd Precinct Police Department. Police leadership there thankfully read the writing on the wall. They left behind the building, and shortly after, protesters broke through the barricades and burned the building to the ground. Those protesters there that day had lost faith that any justice would come for Floyd's killers. And so they took justice into their own hands. To this day, the Minneapolis 3rd Precinct sits in ruins, a burned-out husk that stands as a reminder of what happens when people lose faith in ultimate justice. I am not standing here today to condone or to condemn the burning of a police station. Nor do I cast shame on the protesters who've lost faith in the American system of justice. I empathize with their desire to seek justice even in the symbolic destruction of a building. Instead, I simply use the story as an example of what happens when people no longer trust that justice will be served. When people lose faith in justice, they take matters into their own hands, they lash out in personal violence, they spend their lives pursuing personal vendettas, seeking to right a wrong, knowing that on this earth, justice will never truly fully be served. But as Christians, Revelation 18 promises good news. Ultimately, justice will be served. When someone slights me, slanders me, scams me, scorns me, spites me, swindles me, scars me, I trust that their evil deeds will ultimately be put on full display. The fall of Babylon is a promise to all who have been oppressed, all who have endured religious abuse, all who have not received justice that God has not forgotten. Justice will come. The blood of the martyrs will not be forgotten. The abuse of religious power will come to an end. Thus, in light of ultimate justice. I do not need to carry the burden of a personal vendetta. I do not need to seek revenge. Certainly I can set boundaries. Certainly I can push for social change, for reform, for accountability. But the burden of punishing those who have hurt me, I can leave up to God, knowing that his wrath is on my side. Instead, I can simply respond, fallen, fallen, Babylon the great, and rejoice that God's ultimate justice will.
Thank you so much for listening to the Night Church Podcast. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon. And if you have, maybe you can share this with a friend. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on social media at Praxis Ministry or come visit us in Loma Linda on a Friday evening. We'll see you in the next episode.